0: Welcome to the World Art Now podcast, exploring the world through the material culture of its people, in association with Michael Backman Limited.
1: Hi, it's Michael Backman, and I'm here today with Paul Bromberg. Paul uh, Paul, and I actually, well, we've done a podcast before, we talked about Ty Silver because Ty, I mean, rather, uh, Paul. Has uh, written a book on on Thai silver, and he, he's made many other contributions. He is a contributing editor of the Art, to Arts of Asia magazine, and so on. But Paul also is a collector. I mean, I'm a I'm a collector. I started in this business. Um, you know, I, well, I came to it as a collector. Um, so when Paul and I get together, I mean, it's, well, it's, uh, we're really good friends, and it, it's it's always good fun because we just talk about our latest acquisitions and so on. I mean, I have. Bought, you know, or collected so much in the past that I had to open a gallery really just to help uh, get rid of some of it, I suppose. But also because it's that that, that whole pleasure of hunting down things and researching it and and so on. So a gallery is a good way to, you know, to even expand that as an interest. Um, But I'm always fascinated by why some people collect and others don't and, and why are some people wired up to do it and And so sort of these paradoxes of of seemingly appearing to be materialistic, but but actually not, because even though you've collected a lot of stuff, you're not really interested in in acquiring. For the sake of having material possessions, it's something else. What What do you think, Paul? Why 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 do you collect? I mean, I, before you start, what I want to say also is that I often think that uh, a lot of collectors, um, and this includes some of my clients, actually, they, they almost have the the persona of being like a drug addict. That they need a hit all the time. I mean, is this how? Do you think you're a drug addict, Paul?
0: I don't think I'm a drug addict, but I do think I'm addicted to collecting. Yes. And you know, there've been many studies. Uh, written on collecting and why people do it, and clearly, if you don't, if you're not a collector, then you'll never understand why hmm. people are collectors. Yes. Um, but there's also a difference within collecting. There are people who are collectors and uh, want to refine their collection, and there are people who are hoarders oh. who collect anything and will never sell it or prune their collection. Yeah. So I yeah. think I think there's a big difference even within the collecting world between Different types of collectors.
1: That, that's a really good point, actually. I mean, then there's sort of like the there's the idea of the Victorian era collector who had to have one of everything, and and I know we're both a bit like that, and and so we try to cloak it up that we're being intellectual, maybe we're just hoarders. Uh, but no, I don't um, think I'm a hoarder. No,
0: oh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm quite <laughs> happy to prune my collections and to dispose of
1: oh, my <laughs> dispose of my <laughs> mistakes. Didn't want oh. to say, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, it's rather classy your place (laughs) (laughs) in Bangkok but um, I I think there's a new breed of collector that's emerged as well people who are really collecting to interior decorate so there's even like another version of it that uh, they want quality things but only if it fits in in a corner or something like that
0: well there's that collector and there's also another collector who we see a lot more of now who is the collector investor yes. who is buying purely for investment because essentially they've got so many other assets they, they now see collecting as another asset class in which they can mm. invest and hopefully uh, make money. So you know I, I certainly don't think either of us falls into that category mm-hmm. although no. with a bit of luck we may also be able to make some money on our collections when the time does come to
1: dispose yeah, of them yeah i suppose that you you often collect with an eye to an exit strategy where you sort of think well when i'm really old yeah. uh you know if i have to sell the stuff it, it, it's going to be worth something if yeah. i need to dispose of the collection but you secretly hope that you'll never be in that position because you never really want to do it uh, i think although there does come a point i suppose when actually owning a lot of uh items in a collection is actually starts to become like a real obligation because you've got to insure it or you've got to look after it or you know maintain it and, and so on and i suppose there could be a point where you think actually i don't want to do that anymore and i've, I've found out enough stuff and i'm no longer excited by the thrill of the chase
0: although i th- from some of the elderly collectors <coughs> that i know they don't really want to stop because it provides intellectual stimulation Mm. in a way that Mm. nothing else does. So Mm. it may be that they're not buying as regularly as they used to, but they tend to like going to art fairs or antique fairs they like yes. to go to galleries they like to keep an eye on on the market on what's happening because it provides a, a stimulation that otherwise would be missing and helps yeah. keep their brain ticking over and gives them an interest
1: in life that, that's true I mean, in some respects collecting is a, an inwards sort of thing because it's something you do privately and and you squirrel away things and you have them in your home or wherever you keep them but then there is the social aspect of going and seeing dealers or uh, seeing other collectors and mm-hmm. and going to fairs and so so there is that. I think also for older people, uh, collecting it's almost life extending because once you give yeah once you've given up work, if you ever do give up work, um, it's something it's almost like a new occupation it can take over completely and it's that stimulation and as you say, the intellectual stimulation of finding things researching them and increasingly working out if they're fake or not if you're being duped Uh, there's there's always that and uh dodging the the minds that in the minefield that have been laid out for you uh by the unscrupulous so all of that actually is quite engaging um so i think uh, a lot of i mean you do see some uh, particularly men i think who of a certain age who they retire and if their hobby well they never had hobbies so all they did mm. was work and then they retire and then there's always the phenomena of people who do that and then die very quickly because they don't have anything to keep them going but a collector can always keep collecting and yeah. there's always that stimulation
0: yeah, I think, I think definitely, going back to the very beginning of this conversation, mm. what, what makes a collector collect? And, you know, it seems to me there are more male collectors than female collectors. Yes. I, don't know, I don't know why that is or why that would be. Yeah. Um, I know in my case that I was not really collecting anything, even though I was interested in art, until probably the mid-90s. And so a lot of that is probably as well, I didn't have any money. Until, yes. until that time. Yes. You know, I, I first of all became established in my career, uh, did reasonably well at my profession, and then suddenly had uh, spare cash, mm. did not have <clears throat> the family commitments that obviously also uh, uh, keep back or restrict some mm. other people uh, off from, from spending. So with all that in mind, just fell into, into collecting various Thai, artifacts um and then i guess became addicted over a period probably 10 years of, yes. of buying and 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 you know finding things i liked until the point where now i'm always looking because it's <laughs> yes. because it's because it is fun and especially you know during lockdown for instance um i think a lot of people have been looking have been surfing the web looking for things to buy just as or just as for enjoyment, really. Yeah, that's An certainly, escapism. yeah,
1: very much. I mean, for us, uh, you know, the lockdown period, uh, you know, for us as a business, yeah. uh, you know, we did really well because a lot of people were, were looking for things and, and they weren't spending the money on the, the travel or the restaurants and so on. And also, I think they became more inward-looking, and were looking. They were going through the sort of nesting process of you know, the, um, you know, decorating the house and, and looking for more things for the house, and, and so on. And collectors were wanting to extend their collections. They had the time to do that, and, and suddenly the money, ironically. So, um, so I think, yes, COVID I think has almost been a field day for for collecting, and certainly for dealers, and I know for auction houses. Um, but then, uh, you know, I think there's the other thing that as a collector, you want to travel and you want to go to and see the museums sure. and 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 so on. And I think in some respects, some um, there's another type of collecting where people have travelled a lot and and they start out by buying maybe the fi- you know fridge magnets and that sort of thing, and then they start to realize no, there's a better form of souvenir that you can have. It would be the antiques and the art and you mm. know the material culture of the places to where they've travelled. And we've certainly had clients who maybe they've retired and um, they may not even be traveling anymore, but they start to retrospectively buy souvenirs from where they they traveled to. And so they might have been to Nigeria, so they want a piece of tribal art. They've been to Thailand, they want something from there and build up a collection that way. So there's like that emotional connection and the memories uh, invested in their collection so it's, it's, yeah, it's just another version of collecting.
0: Well, I think for most collectors, we do like to go and see the object that we intend to buy. Yes. Obviously, the internet has changed all that and COVID has accelerated that process that was already in motion. But yeah, you know, I think it all comes down to risk because yes. if you don't see and touch an object in person, there's always a risk that Uh, you're not getting what you think you're getting or there's a problem that you haven't seen however good the videos and the photos are that you're receiving from an auction house offer from from the gallery yeah but it depends on your level of, of of risk appetite you know for me i'm willing to spend you know one or two thousand pounds uh, on an object that I haven't seen and touched in person, but would I be willing to spend ten thousand pounds for for an object I haven't seen and touched in person? The answer is no. But clearly, there are many people that are willing to spend tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds.
1: Yeah, that, certainly that's the case uh, with our business, with the gallery. Uh, you know, most of our clients, you know, uh, to be frank, uh, have not been to our premises. Sad because they're quite nice. Uh, but yeah, very um, nice. Oh, thank you. Uh, but um, I think over over a period of time, you can build up a rapport, even if it's just by email, uh, mm-hmm. and so on. You actually become sort of quite f- good friends with some people, and you've even never had a phone conversation. And uh, that's certainly been my experience. I mean, we've sold to museums and, and dealt with curators that I've actually never spoken to or never met, but I almost regard as friends. And and it's a curious thing, though. But but I think people have learned to do that. They've learned over time to 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 buy like this, but I guess it comes down to trust as well. And, and also, that's that if something is wrong, um, uh, can you get your money back? Can you uh, t- send the object back? Sure. And that, That's always important. So, um, so I think that helps to build up the confidence as well. If there's an exit, if there is uh, something that you weren't expecting, and or, or you know, and of course we all do make mistakes. I mean, no one's infallible, and um, you know, every dealer has sold something that's not necessarily what they thought. Um, and sometimes a knowledgeable collector can take it and point out, hey, did you see this? Mm. And, you know, and, and together you look at it and think, oh, actually, no, I didn't. And then um, you know, the, the, the good dealer will be you know, the one that gives a refund. Um, so once people understand that, then that lowers the risk, mm. and uh, then they can buy. And I think over time that there's been a lot more... You know, When I first started this business, we, we really started more as an internet type gallery, but we've always had physical premises. And a lot of people said to me, "Oh, people might buy a book over the internet, but they're not going to buy a, a five thousand pound or a ten thousand pound object." But we found that, you know, fairly quickly that actually, no, they would. Yeah. Uh, fortunately.
0: <laughs> well, I think, from my perspective, you know, the, the 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 things that I would like to share with with people who are thinking about collecting, mm. it, you know, the the good things and the bad things. Um, from you know on the positive side, um, I think when you go out and you you look at objects, um, if you find something that you are very excited about, take your time don 't immediately buy it um, if especially if you are you know it 's right in front of you, step back. Uh, think about it maybe do a little research and then if you have a chance to go back and 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 physically see it a second time the second time then you know whether you really love it or whether yeah which which often is the case it may reconfirm what you already thought (laughs) yeah but then there's also occasions when you your initial excitement dims and you mm. think, well, maybe I can live without it. Yes, yes. And I think that's, that's, that's important because as, as, as collectors, we often, you know, as part, when we're forming a collection, we often get carried away.
1: Yeah, And I think it's important important
0: not to get too carried away and try to maintain an even keel through this Mm. collecting uh, life cycle.
1: You know, the test I use, uh, if there's something that I really want and maybe it's too much money for, and this is for me as a collector, not as a dealer. and, and it's, it's like, if I go to sleep, and then if it's one of the first things I, I think of when I wake up the next morning, then I know I should have it. <laughs> but if I wake up the next morning and it, and it, ta- it, is, it takes me until about I don't know, 11 o'clock at night, in the morning until I finally remember the object, then I think, oh, it's not memorable, it's not interesting, yeah. I don't need it. Um, but if it's the first thing, I still have that excitement, oh, I need to acquire that. You know you wake yeah. up plan- plotting, how do I get it? <laughs> Then you must have it um and i say that to my clients i say you know have a sleep and if you think if you wake up the next morning and you're still thinking about the object well then you've got to have yeah, it um,
0: yeah no, i think that's, that's good advice <laughs> yeah. that is good advice
1: yeah i mean uh, the big problem for most collectors and, and this is absolutely the case for for me personally and also for my clients is space yeah. um and we all have this problem and um a lot of my clients uh you know they don't run out of money they run out of space um and the worst news as a dealer is to hear that your client's downsizing their apartment you think oh hell uh the best news is that they've just <laughs> bought a new place and it's got a lot more room um so yeah, that, this that, is an issue that's been
0: a big issue for me because i live in a condo or yes. an apartment in bangkok and it is um it's about 200 square meters so it's not a small apartment but as yeah. you alluded to earlier it is rather full uh, at the moment so essentially we made a decision uh, several years ago to stop buying large objects mm. and to concentrate on mm. smaller objects mm. and that way obviously we don't have the the space issue the other thing which I would add is that you know often I look at my cabinets and I think there's just too much in there and sometimes less is more and yes. that's and that it's better to rotate objects in the display cabinets so that you know often we'll have uh maybe half of of of, of our collection just uh <clears throat> locked away in boxes yeah. and then yeah. and then every six months uh, will rotate what's actually on oh, display. Look,
1: you can be terribly posh, you can open a bottle of yeah. wine and have like a rehang evening yeah. or or you know, <laughs> you put on your curator's hat and you yeah. sort of redo your cabinets and um, make any e- you can even in- invite friends around and get their opinion as to what should go where. Yeah. I mean I in my own place um, I take paintings uh, of by one particular artist a, a French impressionist late French impressionist. Not not expensive but um, uh, but I've got far too many paintings, and, um, and they say, you know, you're, you're quite addicted to, to collecting when you know when paintings are starting to stack up against the wall on the floor, <laughs> and that's what I certainly have. But, you know, then we can have evenings where we decide to rehang and, and just rotate the paintings all the way mm. through, and, and that that's, can be fun. And uh, then you see paintings literally in a new light because they're in closer to yeah. the window or something like that, and you see things in them that you, you haven't seen before.
0: Yeah, and I think that I think that is important because again, you may decide that there are objects in your collection that don't fit Mm. or that you no longer like and Mm. I, I definitely find that my taste changes so that what I liked five years ago is not, not necessarily what I well, like now. Well,
1: yeah, since I've known you, you've cycled through collections because yes. you started out collecting a lot of benchrong Thai porcelain, or yeah. porcelain made in China for the Thai market, which is uh, has a certain aesthetic and taste and so on then you went into thai silver
0: then i went into actually thai tea sets porcelain oh, tea sets, porcelain okay. tea sets oh, okay. you made too, in yes. china for the thai market yes and then after that
1: thai silver thai silver where well, you were competing against me and then <laughs> you uh you broke that fantastic book and uh which is now inducing me to write my own book uh on malay silver and now you're into something completely different later
0: chinese bronzes oh. so i again started off just with the bronze paperweights in the form of animals and and then uh human beings yes and then from there um i was given good advice by 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 one of the dealers that i was buying from who said you know if you want to enhance the collection try not just to limit yourself to the paperweights but to add a few examples good examples of other later chinese bronze wares later right. chinese bronzes being song to ching okay right. so so i've been collecting the bronzes for about four years yes and in fact i've just written an article on the later chinese bronzes for the next issue of arts of asia
1: magazine yeah i've just seen it it looks really good because i don't know much about this but i'm i'm about to because i'm going to read your article <laughs> i yeah. can't wait
0: well thank you thank you um, yeah hopefully it will be instructive because um although there has been some some small uh sections or articles written on later chinese bronzes none have really mm. focused on the paperweights so
1: yeah you know i find this myself in where i deal and what i like to collect uh, that you know most of the world's museums most of the mm. curators you know, the market generally is always fascinated by very early stuff. And and a lot of the later stuff, the later decorative arts, is seen as like the minor so-called, you know, quote-unquote, mm. minor arts. And uh, the later it is, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th century, people aren't interested. Uh, but of course, that's, a lot of that now is a lot more collectible and it doesn't get you into trouble in the way that the earlier stuff does, when it's archaeological and so mm. on. Getting that sort of material across borders is becoming more and more problematic and so on, but the other stuff is often forgotten about, and, yeah. and so it's not written about, the you know, the academics have not focused on it, so there's a good role for private collectors, with maybe more modest incomes and so on, to actually get into that, and, um, and I find a lot of it is, is a lot more relatable, because I mean, frankly, if I look at something from the warring states period, mm. I can't imagine, I, I, don't, I don't relate to it, it's too old. But if I find you uh, know something that says from the 18th or nineteenth centuries I can really relate to it it, it speaks to me well uh, f- uh,
0: from my perspective, I wanted to find well first of all, I am a sinologist originally yeah. so you know I like Chinese art and i'm I'm interested in China but I wanted to find something that um, I found attractive that was the first hmm. issue and of course these hmm. these weights I think are very attractive hmm. and, yes. and very The actual construction of them is very interesting. And then the use of them is equally interesting as scholars' objects, uh, dating from, you know, the 12th, mostly from the 12th century, 13th century on. Um, And they really proliferated during the mid-Ming period, which was the uh, 15th century. Um, So I, I think I was looking for something that, A, was interesting, B was available Mm. and C that I could afford because unlike ceramics from the same period these have remained fairly undervalued I would say compared to other Chinese art yes and so that of course is an issue for anybody who's collecting it doesn't matter whether you're collecting stamps or whether you're collecting you know t-cad is it is um it's you know what what can you afford yep. and what do you find attractive
1: and what you what can you accommodate too because i mean we both live in um cities i i'm in london and you're in bangkok uh london's notoriously expensive for accommodation bangkok is not cheap like it used to be and um you know, thank God neither collects furniture, but I tell you, I would, if I could, I, I'd buy it all. And it's the same as, a, you know, if, from a dealing point of view as well, I'd, I'd buy furniture. I often see furniture, which I'd love to have, but there's just nowhere way to, to accommodate it. And also shipping it is so damned expensive. And, and you know, that one of our rules, um, which probably accords with, with a lot of our collectors, um, is I, I tend not to buy anything that I can't FedEx. Okay. Uh, so, uh, and, and they, again, most of our clients only buy what they can comfortably sit in their collections or in their houses and so on. So, yeah, size is an issue. Uh, and, and yeah. But I think in one respect, um, having a size constraint um, can help you as a collector because uh, otherwise you do tend to hoard rather than collect and, and you don't edit. And I think a, a case of that are some of the Middle Eastern sort of uh, rulers and maybe the Sultan of Brunei and, and some and I've been to Brunei and um, seen how when they were collecting, they tended just to buy one of everything and, and um, there was no sense of editing, no sense of scarcity and, and no sense of being careful. And so sometimes when you do have these constraints, whether it's financial space and whatever, it teaches you to be careful as a collector and, and that's a really good discipline because that's what makes you a curator as well as a collector
0: yeah i think that's mm. a good point point. and i've seen many collections where i look you know you, you look at it and you just see that there's a lot of not very fine pieces mixed in with some very fine pieces and you think why why have you kept the ones that aren't so good but maybe they have special meaning to the collector i mean yeah. that's the other thing as you said earlier it's where where you buy it what the the situation was when you bought it yes all
1: of those yeah. all
0: of those uh play uh, a factor in one's collection decision making if you like
1: yeah that that's definitely the case there, there's a lot of uh, it's it's this interesting thing that um as a collector you're pushing together other people's stuff. There's nothing of you in each item particularly, but in, in the overall thing, you, there is a lot of you because you, you're the one that's brought it all together. And it's, a, it's an interesting because we're not the artist. Uh, we haven't developed these things. Um, we are collecting other people's cleverness in, in some respects, but then there's an overall cleverness in having researched the items and, and built the collection. Um, so it's sort of like the irony or the paradox of collecting is that there's nothing in each individual item of you, but in the totality of it, it's all you.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think that is the fun of collecting. And again, you know, some people, maybe the hoarders, uh, <laughs> will will collect and never think about selling. Yes. But, but again, I think there's nothing wrong for a collector, and certainly I, I, I'm, I'm this way, that, you know, eventually I, want, I do not want to keep everything no. and I do want to form a collection that eventually I, I will either give part of it away, maybe to a museum, mm. or I'll sell it. And I don't see anything wrong with that. I think that that is uh, part of the joy. Or, and the fun of yeah. the collecting process.
1: And there's quite an intellectual component as well because, of course, you research the pieces and so on. The other thing is that, is that a lot of collectors always have, in the back of their minds, one day they're going to write a book on their collection, yeah. which is what I'm doing now, it was some of my collection, and it's what you've done. Um, and, yeah, and I know a lot of my clients, in fact, one of my clients asked me to help him uh, put together a book, and so we're doing that now. We've found someone to write it, someone to publish it, and, and so on. And most of the items in it, in fact, we've sold him. Um, so it's almost like I felt I had a duty of care to, you know, he'd bought so much that I should now help him um, put together a book on, on his collection. So that that's in train, I'm very pleased to say. Um, so, and again, this is another one of these paradoxes whereby you pushing together a lot of material items but it's not because you're materialistic it's because you're collecting the aesthetics of it or or the histories and it's almost like you're you're collecting history uh and the items are are sort of like the material evidence or, or the circumstantial evidence of the stories you're trying to tell
0: and again when you're when you are collecting like this uh you know it's often said i think it was david rockefeller I think it was David Rockefeller who actually said, um, you should try to buy the best example that you can afford. Uh, And I think Mm -hmm. that's true for every collector. Always try to buy the best if you can.
1: Yes, and I think uh, David Khailini, the the well-known Islamic arts collector here in London, he said something like, um, whatever seems expensive today will seem cheap tomorrow. And I think that often that's the case as well. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't agree more. Well, I think, Paul, we should probably leave it and uh, uh, we, <laughs> I was going to say, we've got probably some auction previews to look at <laughs> online or something. <laughs> I think that could be the case. <laughs> yeah, probably, which goes back to the original premise, are we really, are we really collectors or just addicts?
0: <laughs> I think the answer to that is addicts. And, and in fact, um, there's not, You know, it's one of those addictions that is not harmful. Yes. so so in a
1: way oh, well there'd be a lot of spouses who might disagree with I this i don't know <laughs> I,
0: I you know let's let's face it we're, we're not really doing self-harm and at the end of the day you know hopefully our collections are valuable and yeah. the money that we spend is not being wasted
1: well i think also that actually just as a wrap-up point that um there, there is a, a moral component to this Um, And and I think it's this, that collectors are responsible, often, uh, maybe even more than some museums, but certainly in conjunction with museums and and museum curators, we're responsible for protecting the material culture Hmm. of past uh, societies and and cultures and so on, because we put our our time, our energy, and most importantly, um, you know, our, well, it's actually our time, that's the important thing. Uh, We put all of this, uh... into our collections but we're, what we're doing is we're doing it over a lifetime and so we're not doing it while we're you know in a post for three years with a museum or something we're doing it maybe over a period of fifty or sixty years mm. and, and then often those collections uh, the private collections end up going into museums or whatever and in fact some of the world's big museums today are really mainly assemblages of private collections like the Met and the British Museum and so on which would not be where they are today if it wasn't for the efforts of private collectors
0: yeah, that's very true, Michael. But the only the only thing now is that uh, I don't know how much more that will continue because a museums essentially are full, their yes. storage facilities yes. are full, yes. and secondly, the issue of provenance is such now, yes. which you touched on earlier, mm. that a lot of museums will not accept anything you know that is pre so post 1970 and so you know unless there's very very clear provenance, so that makes it quite difficult even with you know things that are not you know in, de- in made of endangered species or anything like yes. that but i think the museums are much more cautious about accepting gifts
1: these days oh that's certainly true i mean i i have had the experience of uh collectors who build up bizarre collections of maybe five hundred uh versions of, of one item and they think well surely a museum would want this and i'm like no 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 they don't not anymore what they want is the best one you've got yeah and and that's it but they're not going to mount an exhibition of 500 uh i don't know indonesian cockspur cases or something like that or or you know things to do with sewing or, or you know that sort of thing they just want the best one or, or a representative example um so i think often when when people are collecting probably the best advice i would say is to collect uh, around a topic but quite widely but don't for god's sakes collect one of every damn thing that was ever made of in, in one area if it's too narrow it becomes unusable mm. and you'll find that it becomes uncommercial you won't be able to sell it uh no one will want it but if you collect uh, more broadly around a topic that's a lot more useful even commercially when you go to sell it yeah good advice mm. i would say mm. Well, thanks, Paul. That's,
0: yeah. No, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure as yeah. always. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have been listening to the World Art Now podcast in association
1: with Michael Backman Limited. To hear more, visit worldartnow.com.